Well, good morning, First Baptist Liberty City. It's good to see you, and it's good to be with you this weekend. As we begin this morning, just by means of introduction, uh, my name is Trent Roseman, and I send you greetings from sunny Tampa, Florida. Uh, I was able to come here this weekend to be with our students, and let me just tell you, uh, you not only have a great student pastor, you have a great group of students here at First Baptist Liberty City, and it's been a joy and an honor to serve them. So... I'm here with my wife. Her name is Jessie, or Jessica. Um, we've been married, sorry, we've been married for six years now, um, or coming up on six years. Uh, we have two kids. We have a boy who's three years old named Judah, who is hanging out with Pops at home in Tampa right now, and they're having a blast together. Pops is my dad, his grandpa. And then we have a little girl, seven months old, named Cadence, uh, who's actually, I think, in the nursery right now. I'm honestly not sure, but I think she's in the nursery right now. Uh, let me describe my family to you in this way, at least my kids. My son is a blast, but he is ornery. My daughter is messy, but she is precious. She is so precious. So thank you so very much for uh, having the ability to come here this morning. Uh, it's an honor. It's a privilege. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to your pastor, uh, Dr. Paul, uh, uh, Paul Michael. Uh, thank you so very much for letting me stand in your pulpit this morning and uh, trusting me with that. I, I see it as a great privilege, so thank you, and I will honor the Lord's Word to the best of my ability this morning. Um, Something I just want to say as we get forward uh, or move forward this morning is it is all of God's grace that I even stand before you this morning. Um, if you were to see the testimony of even my own life, you would just see evidence of uh, not of my own goodness, but of God's grace. But enough of my words, let's get to God's. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning in verses 6 through 11. It's the very end of the book of 1 Peter. And Peter is bringing his final closing in the book in these verses before he kind of says bye in the following verses. But 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. I just finished a series with our college students at FBC Tampa. Um, and the series was through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, to me, is very similar to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And the reason it is very similar to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament is Peter begins his letter to elect exiles. That's how he begins his letter. I write this letter to you, elect exiles. Well, if you know anything about the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you know that Daniel, Daniel was exiled to Babylon. When he was much younger, in his teenage years, he was taken out of Jerusalem amongst the people of Judah by a man named Nebuchadnezzar and his army and taken into Babylon where he was forced for a number of years to learn the language and the teachings of mysticism from the Chaldeans. But we know from the very beginning of that story, Daniel refused certain things in an in, in, in effort to honor the Lord. And he resolved to serve the Lord all of his days there. And we, knew it, we know it to be true. Because if you read the book of Daniel, you see many instances in which he was brought before the king to testify to who his God truly was. Not the God of the Chaldeans. He was not a worshiper of idols. He was a worshiper of the one true God. A person of God. Elect. Being a person of God. But an exile awaiting his promises. 
We see later on in the end of the story or the narrative of Daniel, before the kind of the prophetic part of Daniel in chapter 6, that after uh, Belshazzar uh, had his kingdom removed from him, that um, Darius, a new king, the Medo-Persian king, came in um, and actually kind of changed things around in Babylon. And instead of Daniel being killed, the Lord preserved his life and let him serve high up in the Medo-Persian empire under King Darius. You see the Lord's sovereignty through all of that. Well, the others that are serving alongside of Daniel under King Darius in the Medo-Persian Empire do not like Daniel because he's an exile. He is an Israelite. He is not a Persian. And so what do they do? They conspire with each other because Daniel is about to be put over all the kingdom to basically get Daniel killed. And so they gather together these satraps and these high officials and they say, well, we can't find anything wrong in his own life, anything morally corrupt, so let's trap him in his personal prayer life and let's go to the king and let's make this decision where we influence the king to basically kill anyone who will pray to any other god but Darius. And so they do this, just that, Darius' influence to put an edict out to kill anyone who would pray to any other god or lord or master other than himself. Daniel hears about this. And if you didn't know around this time, Daniel's around 80 years old. He had, for the majority of his teenage years and his young adult life, served kings who opposed God. All the while, back in Jerusalem, his family was being destroyed and killed. But he had served faithfully. He was in exile. He was a person of God. He was awaiting the promises of God. And when the edict went out, when he was 80 years old, under the Medo-Persian king Darius, it said he could not pray. Do you know what Daniel did? He was 80. He didn't care. He's going to go up there and he's going to pray because that's what he did every single day, three times a day, and the people knew it. That's why they tried to catch him in his prayer life because his life was marked by prayer. He says, I'm just going to go ahead and go pray. When you're 80, you just don't care. He knew how to live in the meantime as a person of God awaiting his promises. He knew very well that God had promised through the prophet Isaiah to restore Jerusalem, that the exiles would one day be free again. They would be taken back to Jerusalem, as it says in Jeremiah 29, 10. After 70 years, my people will be returned to Jerusalem. And so what did he do when he prayed? He opened up his windows, and as he's praying, he's staring at Jerusalem. The very promises of God that he desires to be fulfilled and knows they will be fulfilled. He doesn't care what the king says. He knows the king of kings. And so he's going to pray with the promises of God at the forefront of his mind. He knows how to wait well in the meantime. He didn't just pray for God's provision to get him through the day, but he prayed with God's promises in his mind about tomorrow. The very promises that God would grant that one day his people would be taken back to Jerusalem. Peter envisions Daniel's situation in writing his letter, and he calls us elect exiles which in short is we're the people of God awaiting the promises of God. We are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land, are we not? This is not our heavenly home. 
We await the promises of God to be fulfilled. And just like Daniel, we ought to pray in the meantime, waiting well with hope, eyes not on the Jerusalem that Daniel looked at, but the new Jerusalem that will come in Revelation 21, waiting with hope, where we will one day finally be free. We talked this weekend about what it means that we have been fully forgiven from the punishment of our sin. But this morning, we're going to talk about the day that we await where we'll be finally free from the presence of sin. We are elect exiles, fully forgiven from the punishment of our sin, awaiting the day we'll be finally free from the presence of our sin. So the theme of 1 Peter, as we've discussed, is living hope for elect exiles. And this is a unique time that we live in today. A unique, unique time in history, his story. There are blessings as believers that we already possess by virtue of our relationship with Christ. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven, you've been adopted into the family of God, and you have the, Holy, the, the promised Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's a seal of your guarantee until the day of redemption, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. These are blessings that we already possess by virtue of our relationship with Jesus. But there are also things that we await in our relationship with Jesus, are there not? The removal of the presence of sin in our lives, the riddance of diseases, viruses, and syndromes, the resurrection of our bodies, and the renewed heavens and earth where God will dwell with man. And if this sounds kind of foreign to you, this already people of God, yet awaiting the promises of God to come, I assure you it is all throughout the New Testament. Because as Daniel awaited the promised Messiah to come, we await the second coming of that same promised Messiah. There are many verses in the New Testament that speak of this already, not yet, even together. Let me give you a few. In 1 John verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Oh, what a day that'll be. John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. A gift we've already been given. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. This is John 5, 24. So eternal life is something we have, but also Romans 8 tells us we still await something. We wait, it says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So in a sense, we find ourselves in a unique place in history between who we are because of Christ's first coming and who we will be at Christ's second coming, a time in between. Elect, because we have trusted Christ, yet exiles, because he has not yet returned. We live in the meantime. And as I've already mentioned, and I want to repeat myself, 
while we have been, as believers, fully forgiven from the punishment of our sin, we await the day together when we will be finally free from the presence of sin and in the presence of our Savior. Let me say it like this. While God is always with His people, He's omnipresent, He's omniscient, and He has indwelt us with His Spirit, Jesus says in John 14 that He is going away and He's going away to prepare a place for His people, but He will return again to His people so that they might forever be with Him. It's almost like a loving father who goes off on a trip, but he has promised his soon return to his son that he loves. Like me in Texas right now, I'm looking forward to being back with Judah. The son awaits the return of the father because with his father there is indescribable, incomparable joy. The boy longs for the return, but the father's a good father. Even while he awaits, his return, so he's ensured the boy's safety, he's provided him with all he needs, he can communicate with him regularly on the phone and through the notes he's left for him. But he's not home with the boy. And there's nothing more than that boy wants than the father to return home. So the boy waits with hope for the day the father will come home. Now, this earthly illustration, of course, excludes the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit, but it gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse into the longing we ought to have for our Father's return. And the question I have for you to ponder this morning as we're in the text of Scripture is what do we do in the meantime? How do we wait with hope? Looking back at Daniel and elect exile, how are we today, elect exiles, waiting well in the meantime? What does hope-filled waiting look like? And Peter, as he concludes this letter to elect exiles in 1 Peter, I think that's what he speaks to. So let's allow it to speak, and would you read with me 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. You can follow along as I read aloud. And let me just ask you this, maybe abnormal, or maybe this is a normal thing you do, but can we stand together as we read the text of Scripture? Let's stand as we read 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is a blessing, not a burden. 
we submit to it today, not begrudgingly, but gladly. It is your instruction for our lives. Lord, sometimes hearing what is true in the Scriptures exposes our sin, and it's hard to hear. But Lord, as you came, the very word of truth as a light into the world that exposes sin and also illuminates truth, may we, if necessary, as we are convicted, confess our need for you. Lord, may your word do what your word says it can and will do. Not return void, but instead convict, encourage, rebuke, rebuke, reprove, strengthen and train us into your likeness. You are a good God. We rejoice in you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. There are three things that I think we need to remember as Peter closes his letter to believers who await the promises of God to be fully fulfilled at his return. In the meantime, what ought we remember in the meantime? Once again, fully forgiven from the punishment of sin, awaiting the day where we be fully and finally free from the presence of sin and the presence of our Savior. There are three things I think he points out here. And I'm going to give you three of them, the three main points. I think you can follow along in your outline. The first one is this. He encourages us to humble ourselves enough to relinquish the control we think we have. To humble ourselves enough to relinquish the control we think we have. Look at it with me, verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Let me ask you a question that I think I know the answer to, and it's simply this. Have you ever been anxious in your life? Like last week, Snowmageddon? I won't tell you that it was 80 degrees last week in Tampa. But I know you guys experienced what was a very difficult time here in Texas, especially even in southern Texas. Have you ever been anxious in your life? I mean, really anxious. Like paralyzed trying to plan for an unknown and uncertain future. Like everything is crumbling around you as you fear the uncontrollable future and its uncertainty. Many of us, of course, especially in this past year, have had feelings similar to this. Most of us have probably struggled with anxiety at some point in our life, if we're not struggling with it right now. What about even today? Waking up this morning, maybe reading the news. Has your mind been filled with questions? Questions like, hey, what does the future of the U.S. look like under our nation's leader? When will the virus be gone? Late leaders. When will the virus be gone? What if I get the virus? What if even political parties divide and it leads to civil war? What if the church is told it can't meet again? What happens if we disobey? What will persecution look like in my life, my friend's life, my family's life, and my grandkids' life? How do I learn to emotionally cope with everything going on right now? And how do I trust Jesus when I cannot trust what tomorrow holds? 
Let me just ask you this. Is anyone tired of hearing the phrase, unprecedented times? I am. But I'm even more tired of having them. It's like we're living in a novel. The only thing we feel certain of in the present is that we're tired of feeling uncertain about the future. And all of us wrestle with anxiety from time to time because all of us experience unexpected things. I mean, think for just a moment about maybe situations in your life of anxiety, possibly last week. And think uh, about maybe even seasons in your life of anxiety that you've experienced. Some of you that have lived much longer than me have seen wars that like I've never seen. And I cannot imagine the anxiety that that brought. In these situations and seasons, the question is not whether you will face them. The question is where will you turn when they come? And while I think quite literally that there are cases of true clinical anxiety due to clinical imbalances, the question does remain as it pertains to anxiety, will you try to face difficult situations and seasons in your life head on and bare knuckle your way through them, relying upon your own strength to control the outcome Or will you relinquish the control you think you have to control the outcome and trust the only one who does? The truth is, when we approach these seasons and situations of difficulty, we only have two choices. Two ways to respond. The first is with our pride. And the other is with genuine humility. And I think this is why he likens humility with anxiety. We respond in pride if we do not trust the mighty hand of God to provide, and instead of seeking his provision, we avoid prayer and trust on our own willpower to handle whatever comes our way, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, if you will. And we respond in humility if we faithfully serve God in the present despite the situations and seasons that may come up, seeking first His kingdom, praying for His wisdom, and trusting His provision. You see, worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. And I think it's true I live in Tampa. Everything's really fast-paced. See this a lot, especially amongst our young adults, even our older adults, that people, while they hate anxiety personally, seem to boast about it publicly. I'm guilty of this myself. You say, maybe, what, what do you mean by that boast about anxiety publicly? Well, well, maybe you've heard someone talk about how they're enduring a difficult time and they almost compete with how little sleep they get and how much they 
have gotten done. Now, I'm not saying that as if we don't have genuine responsibilities in life and we must accomplish the task before us. And I'm not saying hard work is a bad thing. But when lack of sleep becomes a competition, we're, we may be simultaneously boasting about how much we're doing in our own power instead of entrusting the, Lord, the Lord's control of the outcome at hand. So how is humility linked with anxiety? Well, it's how we respond in anxiety. Because when situations and seasons arise that cause us to have to endure, may we, instead of responding with pride, entrust ourselves to God, whose mighty hand, as it says, has parted seas, has brought destruction, and has, in the past, we have record of it, delivered His people. Instead of embracing anxiety as sort of a competition with how white our knuckles can get as we take on the brunt of difficulty. You know, Jesus talked about anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And he says in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, that by his sovereign power he provides for people that he dearly loves, encouraging ourselves to entrust ourselves to his care. This is what he says in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. And I want you to hear it very clearly. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you, will be, what you will put on. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Now, what is notable about this passage, where Jesus speaks on anxiety, is that he likens anxiety and those that are anxious about the uncertainties of their life to a lack of faith. God tells us not to be anxious because our anxiety ultimately, ultimately reveals something greater than simply the stress of being busy. Anxiety often arises when there is a lack of trust in God's sovereignty to control and His providence to provide. Now, this may be difficult to take in, hearing that there is a good chance, a good chance the anxiety you have is tied to a lack of faith in God. That's a truth we want to get as far away from as possible because we want to blame our anxiety on circumstances we don't control. But hear me. Our anxiety does not arise because of circumstances outside of our control, because circumstances are not the problem. Anxiety, in fact, often brings to the surface a truth we so often try to suppress, that being there is no circumstance that we absolutely control. In other words, moments of anxiety... And moments that bring us anxiety don't bring any less control of our future. And moments that 
bring us hope, don't bring any more control of our future. Our future, both immediate and eternal, is held by God. Ultimately held by God. And if that's true, which it is, we mustn't blame uncontrollable circumstances for the anxiety that exists in our lives. Uncontrollable circumstances aren't the ultimate problem in anxiety. Not trusting in the God who's in control of all circumstances is the problem. And so when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, he is teaching us something very clear here. He says persistent anxiety is practical atheism. Persistent anxiety is practical atheism. God is in control. I love that we just talked about last night, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And in the end of that passage, because we Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, joined into the family of God, he calls us citizens his kingdom. And he says that with the backdrop of Rome being the kingdom of the day. And I told our students, you know where Rome is? It still exists, but it exists in ruins. You go and visit what was, not what is anymore. But you look at a map on where Christians are in the world compared to where the tiny spot of Jerusalem where Christians were at the very beginning, God is ruling and reigning. His kingdom is ever expanding. He's in control. So no matter who's in power one day of the week, God's the one who is in control. He says worrying doesn't add time. It actually wastes it. It doesn't help you. It only hurts you. I can help you because I'm a sovereign God, and I will because I'm a God of providence. Cast whatever cares you have upon me. Why? Because I care for you. Because I love you. We look in other passages of Scripture like Philippians chapter 4. It says, don't be anxious about anything but in everything. In prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. What do I need when I worry? Peace. Where do I need it? My heart and my mind. Who provides it? Christ Jesus on the throne. Humble yourself enough to relinquish the control you think you have to the one who is in control of every circumstance. This is one way we live well in the meantime. Here's another way we live well in the meantime. Be aware of the enemy and resist his desire. Be aware of your enemy, our common enemy, and resist his desire. Read it with me in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what's the command here? It is to be watchful, to be sober-minded, to keep your mind alert. Why? Because Satan is looking. His ambition is to allure you towards sin to cause you to slowly abandon your allegiance to Christ and to destroy the hope you have by devouring you in sin. So be watchful. Be sober-minded. Keep your mind alert. He roams the earth to and fro. 
because I oversee at our church, as one of the pastors of our church, a few different things, but among them our student ministry and our young adult ministry, I get asked often what I'm watching on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or like a thousand different streaming places there are now. And my answer usually is just how I'm watching something I've already seen. Like truly, at this point in my life, um, I really don't have that much time to just binge watch anything. Um, so I typically will ref- like just return to some episodes of a show I've already seen and watch it for like the fourth time, right? I can't commit to watching something new. And I don't know what it is, but in so many of our lives, we feel the need to be up to date on what the world is watching. And hey, if the world is watching something wholesome, then what, what, watch it, right? Not typically the case. But oftentimes we feel a need to watch what everyone else is watching so that we're not kept out of the conversation no matter what they're watching. We want to be in the loop. Hear me, I, I don't think your TV is sinful. It's an avenue by which you can glorify God just like your phone is and an avenue by which you can pursue sin. But consistently being entertained by what God finds deplorable is a short road to ruin. So if I find myself entertained by something that includes terrible language, intimate perversion, and horrific violence, is Jesus pleased? And if Jesus is not pleased, who is? The lion. The one who wants to delude you into thinking that consistent small steps of disobedience won't eventually devour you. Don't play with sin. I've seen so many try to play with it, keeping it in a corner, not knowing that it would eventually devour them. I had the privilege of speaking uh, last week, I think, at First Baptist Orlando uh, amongst a group of other pastors and speaking to college pastors. And the individual that I was slated to speak alongside of for that conference no longer is at his church. A week before that, I had become really good friends with him, hoping that our families would get together and eat lunch and eat dinner and learning a lot from him and how he's led his ministry. Because he thought sin in the corner wouldn't eventually devour him. It destroyed his ministry and it nearly destroyed his family. Sin is not to be played with. We have seen this and it is all too common. I'm borrowing an illustration from another pastor here, but I think it's a fitting one. Has anyone seen the show, uh, the, the show uh, When Animals Attack? Great, I'll explain it for you, okay? All right. The show When Animals Attack is a show about different times, of course, when animals have attacked, right? And, and so in this show, When Animals Attack, they're talking about stories, whether in the wild, in shooting a movie, or in shooting a commercial when an animal attacked. Well, there's this one story in When Animals Attack where they were talking about on the show uh, about a commercial. And the commercial was uh, for a shampoo brand. 
And in the commercial, what took place was there was this model that they brought in, of course, to film the commercial, to record the commercial. And what the model did, of course, is she was like, of course, scantily clad. She was laying on top of a lion, right? And it was uh, basically to show off how nice of hair she had. So she was on top of this lion. And in the commercial, what was going to happen was that she was going to like kind of stroke the lion's mane because this shampoo, I don't know what shampoo it was, but this shampoo would give you soft golden locks like that of a lion. Well, you know what took place? It was on the show. She laid upon the lion, and the lion, because there are children in this room, took her life. I mean, like that. Now, what's crazy about this story is that they interviewed the lion trainer afterwards. And they said, hey, you know, the, the, the lion, of course, killed the woman. What are your thoughts on this? You know how you responded? I have no idea how that could have happened. And you're watching when animals attack, and you're like, it's a lion. Like an apex predator, like alpha male. Like it is born to kill, right? It kills for killing's sake. It fears nothing. King of the jungle, right? The trainer's like, um, I couldn't have seen it coming. And you're like, what are you thinking, right? The trainer said this. I raised it as a baby, I took it for walks, I combed its mane. When I told it to do something, it did something, and when I told it not to, it didn't. He thought he had it managed, and that it wouldn't devour, but you know what it did? It did what it does, and it devoured. Similarly, some of us believe we have our sin managed. We put it in the corner. We do this, but not that. We only do things in private so that no one sees. We go this far, but not this far. I teach it to sit, I teach it to stand, and I teach it to obey, all without realizing you are consuming something that will eventually devour you. Sin is damaging and deadly. It is not to be played with at any point in time. It is to be ran from. And not only that, the passage says, a roaring lion. Now, while its roar quite literally may be intending to point to its ferociousness, it also is likened to the fact that it's not hiding. Now, we know that Satan sometimes masquerades himself as a person of light, alluring people. But I think there are sometimes we struggle with sin that is blatant before our very eyes. So I do live, once again, in Tampa, Florida. One thing that I love to do is I love to kayak. It's like my thing, right? I kayak overnight trips sometimes in the brackish waters around the mangroves. And then I learned pretty quickly, so I'm from Missouri, where Pierce is from, and I learned pretty quickly that when you kayak in Tampa, there are other animals that exist in the waters that don't exist in Missouri. Anybody know what those animals are? Alligators. They are terrifying. Um, And so I I had to learn to kind of at least get used to the fact that they're in the water. First time I went out on a two-hour trip um, on the Hillsborough County uh, River or Hillsborough River, uh, we saw about 12 in about a two-hour period. You get used to it. It's a little freaky at first, but you get used to it. Um, But then there was this one day we decided to take an 11-hour trip. We made it about nine because we were terrified, but about a nine-hour trip, and we went at a certain point of the river um, that we could put in, and we told the, like the, the guy who led us into this, the state park area that, hey, we're going to go here and we're going to go to here just in case um, you, you need to know that. Now, I didn't realize it, but I was going with a guy who was not as scared as alligators as I was. And what he was saying there is if we don't return, um, you need to call someone. I didn't get that, right? 
So we're in the water, we're going down, we got about a mile past the state park, and the water starts to really, really narrow and start to shallow. And I look on our GPS, and I realize that there's not a road for about a mile that way and a mile that way, and this is all like swampland. So we start, if you know anything about kayaking in Florida, um, you, you have to, when you get to certain uh, logs, there's all the time, there's like logs across the river, wa- the river way, and so you have to literally get out of your kayak, stand upon the log, and bring your kayak over the log. Do that all the time, right? And you kind of balance your way back into the kayak, right? Well, what was so crazy about this is not only was there a sign that says, don't go past here, eh, bad idea, right? Um, and we kept going, but... Uh, there was about every 40 yards a big log. Usually it's not every 40 yards, right? And so we're having to get out of the water a lot. And we noticed that there's at least about a gator or two in between those 40 yards. So here's my thought process. Okay. If I run on the land, there's a lot more alligators. If I stand on a log, the alligator can get me. If I get in my kayak and I'm between the two 40 yards, I only have about 40 yards to try to get away until the alligator can catch up with me because it takes a while to get out of my kayak and move it. So I'm stuck. Then we happened upon, so I'm like terrified at this point. I'm like shaking, right? Uh, Then we happened upon a spot where there was kind of an embankment and the water was probably only about eight or so feet wide. Most alligators leave you alone. The alligator that we came across was hissing at us, mouth fully open, about nine feet long. And we had nowhere to go. Hear me. An alligator that's hissing at you is not one you mess with. By God's grace, we are still alive. And now we just have a story. But hear me, I think it's true to say there are some times where sin is so blatant right in front of us and we avoid to even look at it because we would rather the sin than run from it. Shows that we turn on that in the very left-hand corner tell us what's going to be in them. Nudity, whatever it might be. Show had the warning of this content, and you thought you wouldn't get hurt? It's roaring at you. I mean, by God's grace, for some reason, those warnings are still in the corner. This person wants everything to do with you and nothing to do with Jesus, and you thought you wouldn't get hurt? Sometimes the warning is right before us, but we're not watchful because the allure of sin is stronger than the warning of pain. But hear me, when you hear the roar, there is but one response, and it is to run. When you hear the roar, run. When sin is presented before you, run. Be like Joseph when Potiphar's wife came in and he just fleed, right? The Bible tells us to flee immorality, to run from it, not have second thoughts about it, run from it. Because hear me, there exists no pleasure in disobedience that's worth the pain of being devoured. No pleasure in disobedience that's worth the pain of being devoured. So be watchful and be sober-minded. And be sober-minded by keeping your mind upon Scripture. This is what Scripture teaches us in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So when it comes to deception, 
There is no better way to discern what lies are than to plant yourself in what truth is. This is how we keep sober. This is life-giving. Third, he tells us not only to be watchful and to trust God who is in control, but lastly, this is what he teaches. This is number three in your outline. Trust that the good plans of God will be accomplished by the great power of God. At the end of the day, there will be an end of the day. And the one who is there will be God and God alone, the conqueror. It says this in 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11, after you have suffered a little while, 1 Peter is marked with the fact that we will experience suffering as elect exiles. And he says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I tell our students often that we tend to forget what our final hope is. We do. Sometimes we view heaven as the place that we just simply escape earth. And sometimes we need the reminder of what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that is our final and great hope. That as Jesus resurrected, so too as he returns, you will be resurrected. And you will dwell in glorified, imperishable, resurrected bodies for all eternity with Christ forever. His dwelling place will be with you. And you will be in the presence of a Savior without the stain of sin, sickness, sorrow, or strife. And that is what we ought to look forward to and long for in the meantime, right? Like Daniel looking toward Jerusalem as he prayed in Babylon, we are similarly strangers and sojourners living in a dim lit foreign hotel longing for our glorious forever future home, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21. And this little while that he mentions is the space in between Christ's ascension to heaven and his descension at his second coming, the already not yet, the time in between, the time of waiting, and the time that we are to be faithful as we await our faithful God and his promises to come. And no matter how long our suffering might be, we might remind ourselves, and we must remind ourselves, that it is short in light of eternity because there will be a day where humility will give way to glory, brokenness will give way to beauty, suffering to strength, mortification to glorification, sin to spotlessness, God dwelling in us to God dwelling with us. And though things may appear chaotic on earth, our God is in control above the earth. We can trust God in all circumstances because we know the end and we need not worry in the meantime. The same God who saved us will sustain us and will present us blameless on the day of redemption, Jude 24 through 25. And he can because Everything belongs to him. Everything. So let's not fear. We are his. And what we will be is even greater because our Father will be coming home. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that though we were sinners, desperate, deserving of condemnation, you looked upon us in love. And instead of pouring out your right wrath upon us, sent your son Jesus to take upon himself the punishment of our sin so that by believing in him and what he has accomplished upon the cross, we no longer will face your wrath because Jesus did in our place. And though we wait a little while until your coming again, help us, we pray, to remain faithful. We long and look forward to that day. We say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We trust you in the meantime. Help us to wait well and wait with hope. Keeping our eyes like Daniel on Jerusalem. That will come from heaven. You with it. For our home will be with you. It is in your glorious good name that we pray these things and our wait the day will be free. Amen.